feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hello from London. I'm here in London while my production team and I are on a short break. But Ashley Hamer and Cody Goff are here with another great episode of Curiosity Daily. Graham and Sarah, I agree. This is one of our favorite podcasts. And I'm really excited to be able to share this episode with our audience, you know. So take a listen. Here are Ashley and Cody with more interesting and curious discoveries. Hi, I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we want to share some of our favorite stories that ask the question, is it just me? Yeah, am I the only one who feels like I had more friends in my 20s than I do in my 30s? And why is it so hard to exercise after work? Is it just me? And am I the only doofus who talks louder when I'm wearing headphones? Well, I certainly don't talk louder when you're wearing headphones. That's what I don't think. <laughs> You'll also hear from one of our favorite guests we've had on our show. So stick around. We're going to start with something that you may have dealt with if you've ever felt like you don't really belong. We've talked about imposter syndrome on this podcast before. And today, we've got a research-backed quiz you can take to find out if you suffer from it. Cody and I both took the test, and we'll let you know how we did in a minute. But first, let's back up with a quick refresher on imposter syndrome. In the 1970s, a pair of clinical psychologists named Dr. Pauline Rose Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes interviewed dozens of successful women, and they noticed something strange. Even though on paper, these people had achieved success, they admitted to a fear that they'd gotten there through luck or by mistake. Clance and Imes named this feeling imposter syndrome. One professor told them, quote, I'm not good enough to be on the faculty here. Some mistake was made in the selection process, unquote. Later research found that it's not just women who feel this way. For example, a 1985 study of academics found that the male participants actually had higher scores of imposter syndrome than female participants. And a study last year found that while men and women both experience the phenomenon, they react differently to it. So why do people with such objectively successful lives feel like such frauds? And are some people more likely to feel that way than others? Clance has found that both personality and upbringing can have an effect. People who exhibit more introversion, anxiety, shame, and a need to look smart to other people are more likely to experience imposter syndrome. Likewise, being raised by overprotective, unsupportive parents can have an effect as well. For women, an excessive focus on gender roles can also make the problem worse. If this all sounds familiar and you want to find out if you suffer from imposter syndrome, then you can check out the Imposter Syndrome Scale on Dr. Pauline Rose Clance's website. We've got a link to it in our full write-up on this, which you can read on Curiosity.com and on our free Curiosity app for Android and iOS. And if you get a high score, then here are three tips for how you should cope with your feelings. 
First, normalize the feeling. There's nothing wrong with you if you feel like a fraud. And like I just told you, a lot of accomplished people feel the same way you do. Second, examine your definition of what it means to be competent and what it means to fail. You may find that you have unreasonable requirements for yourself that you don't place on the people around you. Third, think about other reasons you might be feeling this way. Success can be scary after all. Sometimes feelings of fear and self-doubt just mean you're aware of the other side of success. Good luck. And that brings us to you, Ashley. After taking the imposter syndrome scale, there are a few different categories. If you're under 40, you have few imposter characteristics. 41 to 60, you have moderate. And then if you're higher, you have frequent imposter feelings. And then there's a highest level where you have intense imposter syndrome experiences. I was above 80. You Really? Yeah. Like the highest? Yeah. Oh, man. What are we going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's just, I deal with it, right? You just, you can't believe your brain. You're so good at what you do. Thank you. You really need to not feel this way. (laughs) The way that I cope with it is knowing that it's going to happen and knowing that if I listen to it, I'm going to be less successful and then just not listening to it and just moving right along. Because what's the worst that can happen? I get embarrassed. Someone calls me out. There are worse things that can happen to you. There certainly are. Well, I scored the lowest. Wow. But that probably just means I'm a little more self-confident than I probably should No, self-confidence is a great thing. I mean, I may be pretty confident, but I'm not going to lie. I felt imposter syndrome when we got invited to be on Alan Alda's podcast. Oh, same. Yes. He's like, I think you have a great show. And I'm like, what? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was definitely starstruck and full of imposter syndrome, but... He makes you feel so at ease that I actually felt pretty okay. Oh, definitely. Anyway, the takeaway is that no, you're not the only one who sometimes feels like you don't belong. In fact, it's pretty normal. And if you've noticed that your friend groups have changed a lot over the years, then here's some more good news. That's pretty normal too. So Ashley, have you noticed that your friendships kind of change between your 20s and your 30s? Have I? Yes, very much so. Really? How? I have like no friends left. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I used to I used to run with a pretty big crowd and, you know, they're dwindling. Well, that is normal. That is so good to hear. In fact, that could be a good sign. Oh. Yeah. Curiosity follows research on how habits change over time. And according to a study published in Psychology and Aging, the quality and quantity of your friends are kind of supposed to change over time. The researchers found that having more friends in your 20s and having a smaller group of higher quality friends in your 30s are actually predictors of well-being later in life. The study took place over 30 years and participants who had more social interactions at age 20 and higher quality social connections at age 30 reported better well-being at age 50. A study the following year from Alto University in Finland and the University of Oxford in England found that around age 25 is when friends start getting cut from the team. So in your early 20s, men and women are more socially promiscuous, making lots of friends and meeting lots of new people. And then your casual circle shrinks as you get older, possibly thanks to evolution. Because we're primed to start thinking of our families and raising children. And nailing down strong relationships means you've got extra hands to help out with the kids, which is called the grandmother effect. Or maybe you start focusing more on your career and you can't go out to the bars late every night and you can only afford to hang out with a friend once in a while. 
And so you have fewer friends that way. That's kind of what's happening to me. I was going to say, <laughs> it sounds like it's from personal experience. Yeah. So don't lose sleep if you don't have as many friends as you used to. That is such a relief. Another reason you might lose friends over the years is if you get jealous. And chances are you might get pretty jealous of a friend if they're suddenly really good at your thing. If you've been home brewing your own beer for 30 years and then your friend tries it and suddenly they've got the best beer on the block, eh, might get a little jealous. But hey, don't worry. It's not just you. And we'll help you understand where this jealousy comes from as well as how you can deal with it so you can hang on to those precious friends just a little bit longer. There's a reason why it hurts when one of your friends excels at your thing. I'm talking about when you think you're a really good guitar player and you show up at an open mic night and your friend just crushes it with their performance. This happened to me on cross country in high school. I had my best friend join the team. He was literally the slowest person in the conference freshman year. And then he was beating me the next year. And I felt so just bad. I had the same thing happen in fifth grade when I was the girl in the class who could do super great bubble letters. And one day I came in after recess and the teacher had had my friend design a poster for her with bubble letters. And I was heartbroken. Oh no. What's a bubble letter? It's they're like, they're like letters that look like balloons. They're just, it's just a style of, of text. Like a font. Yeah. Like a, like a font that I drew. Like a Comic Sans MS. Except way better. (laughs) (laughs) The reason why it hurts when your friend is better than you at your thing comes from a psychologist named Abraham Tesser. In the 1980s, Tesser came up with what's called the self-evaluation maintenance theory. It's based on two elements. First, people behave in a way that will help them maintain a positive image of themselves. And second, a person's relationships have a substantial impact on that self-image. Basically, you want to see yourself in a positive light but your friends can have a big impact on the way you see yourself, whether it's good or bad. It's easy to have a good time and feel good about a stranger accomplishing something you're good at because you're less likely to compare yourself. And it's great when a friend is good at something you're not good at too. But when a close friend does well at something you do have an interest in, or worse, something that makes up your identity, you're gonna have a bad time. Fortunately, Tesser came up with four ways to cope with this. Although they're not all good. The first method is to distance yourself from your friend. If your best bud beats you in an audition, then either spend less time together or try to focus on the ways the two of you are different. Not so good for the friendship, though. The second method is to change your own self-definition. Maybe concert band isn't your thing, so you focus on jazz or focus on something completely different, like how good you are on the soccer team. The third option, which we do not condone, is to undercut your friend. Basically, either sabotage them or brood about why your friend has an unfair advantage, like more time to practice or more money for better private lessons. The fourth and final option, do better next time. You can cope by trying even harder to get good at that thing your pal showed you up in. Through it all, just try to remember that you're friends first and friends support each other, whether they're killing it or they're lagging a little behind. I think the idea of undercutting your friend is kind of funny. Like if I had a friend come on my podcast and he sounded a lot better than me, I would just like not publish the episode. (laughs) (laughs) But no, honestly, I would probably go with the just try harder option. I mean, I've got to keep those rare friends now that I'm in my 30s, you know? Right. Well, speaking of having people on our podcast, let's switch things up for a minute. We've talked to lots of really cool experts on our show, like physicist Sean Carroll and XKCD creator Randall Monroe. 
And one guest changed the way we look at the power of being excluded. If you've ever felt upset or angry because you felt like you were being left out, then you have to hear about this research. Professor Vivian Sayas is the director of the Personality Attachment and Control Laboratory at Cornell University. She joined us to talk about her research in a miniseries that we ran last June. And a major focus was the sheer power of exclusion. Professor Sayas told us that human beings are inherently social beings who want to belong and connect. And our default mode is being in relationships. There's an argument that from an evolutionary perspective, that's good because when we're socially connected, we have better access to shelter, allies, potential mates, and lots of other great stuff. But there's a flip side to wanting to feel included. Here's Professor Tsayas with more. We're very sensitive to being left out. And when we're left out, it triggers this alarm, this psychological alarm. And that alarm is subjectively felt as sort of pain. Like when we're left out, when we're rejected, when we're not part of a group, it elicits distress and it elicits what's called social pain. And there's work showing that social pain overlaps with physical pain. So it's painful. And, you know, that pain should be adaptive in that it should motivate us to want to reconnect, to see how we can mend the ties that it might be threatened. So there's a lot of work on that. And one way in which it's studied is called cyberball. Basically, participants come into the lab and they're told they're going to play a virtual ball-tossing game with people who are joining the game remotely. So they're not present physically, but they're joining the game and it's computer-mediated. And basically, everybody has an icon and you throw a ball to one another on this virtual ball-tossing game. What the participants don't know is that the two other people that they're playing the game with, so it's a game with three people and the participants won, they don't know that the two other people aren't really participants. They are icons that are computerized by the experimenter to behave in a certain way. And in the inclusion condition, the participant receives the ball from the other players. So you just play catch and everything's fine. They feel, okay, nothing exciting happened. But in the critical condition, which is called the exclusion condition, the two other players initially throw the ball to the participant, but after one or two ball tosses, they stop throwing the ball to the participant and throw the ball to each other. And so they essentially leave the participant out of the ball tossing game. And the participants left there just looking at the two other people throw the ball back and forth to one another. Now, one might think that Who cares if these two other people are playing this virtual ball-tossing game and not including them? You know, this is a meaningless game. It has, you know, I don't know these other people. But this manipulation of being left out of this ball-tossing game elicits distress. People feel bad. Their self-esteem takes a hit. They feel like they don't belong. Life is less meaningful, and they feel like they have less control in their lives. So that's the standard way in which social exclusion is studied, um, or one of the standard ways. And they've done studies where they tell participants the behaviors of the other two people are scripted. The other two people are being told to not throw the ball to you. And even when participants receive that information— they still feel bad. Wow. Um, then they're told in another study, they said, these are people who are part of like the KKK. So a group that most people do not want to affiliate with. And even in that situation, people feel bad if they're left out. 
Wow. Even if wow. they're left out of an interaction with two people that are part of an undesirable group, they feel bad. Even if they're told there's a computer glitch, the other two people cannot throw you the ball. <laughs> what? People still feel bad. Wow. And I think the argument is that we have, again, you know, if you didn't stay a part of your group, if you somehow were left out of your group, you were not going to survive. We have a very uh, powerful alarm that errs on the side of detecting exclusion, even if it doesn't occur, even if it's not occurring. And so we're okay if there's a false alarm. We wouldn't be okay for misses. So the uh, metaphor I like to use is sometimes I'm, c- I'm cooking French fries on the stove and there's smoke. And I'm like, oh, no, the alarm's going to go off. The alarm goes off because there's smoke. Um, there's no fire. But we want the alarm to go off because it could be a fire. And we'd rather have a sensitive alarm go off to prevent the fire than to fail to detect a fire. And that's the same thing that happens with the system, that it's going off reflexively. There's a basic information saying you're being left out. And it's reflexive. It's automatic. And even when we have information to say, like, oh, this doesn't matter. They can't do it. You know, we're not being excluded. It doesn't undo the reflex because the reflex is automatic. Again, that was Vivian Sias, director of the Personality Attachment and Control Laboratory at Cornell University and one of just many experts we have talked to on our show. It doesn't make much rational sense that you'd feel hurt and angry at a computer game for doing something with zero consequences. But nobody ever said humans are rational creatures. We'll be back with more Clear and Vivid right after this short break. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Feel like you got enough to do already? I do. That's why I use Ship Same Day Delivery to keep up with my busy life. They know the snacks I like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter. I can get deliveries at home, on set, or even when I'm away on vacay. And my personal shopper, Amber, she's got my back. As in, she asks them to check the back if it's not on the shelf. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com slash high. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome back to Clear and Vivid. Here's another thing that a lot of people do. And no, it's not just you. Ashley, have you ever had this weird instinct to think about jumping off a bridge? Yeah. 
Not in like a you want to hurt yourself kind of way. Just what would happen? Yeah. I think a lot of people have thought that. And it turns out that it's normal. In fact, it's very normal. Up to 94% of humans with no diagnosed mental illness experience what psychologists call intrusive thoughts. So if you're listening to this, you've probably experienced it. You might have heard this called The Imp of the Perverse, which is also the name of a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Researchers have been publishing studies on this since as early as 1978, and the most recent research says they're especially hard to cope with in patients suffering from OCD, ADHD, and postpartum depression. I wanted to cover this story because these can be very dark thoughts, including aggression and violence, religious blasphemy, and unnatural sexual acts, among other socially inappropriate or even illegal actions. And a lot of these thoughts include vulnerable parties. I told you, I meant dark. And I think it's helpful to know that nearly all of us have these intrusive thoughts, so there's nothing necessarily wrong with you. And there are ways to get past them. Psychologist Lee Baer says we handle it in one of two ways. Either we dismiss the thoughts and pretty much move on with our lives, or we're strongly affected by the bad thoughts, so they happen more frequently, and they can mess with our ability to function normally. Science hasn't figured out exactly why we have these thoughts, but researchers have suggested ways of coping with them if they're making your life hard. According to North Point Recovery, a good place to start dealing with intrusive thoughts is by accepting them. Don't be afraid of them or take them personally, but be mindful and just accept that you have them. And remember that these thoughts have nothing to do with your reality. As long as you don't act on them, they're just thoughts after all. Okay, that was kind of dark. Let's lighten things up a bit. Last December, we recorded a story about New Year's resolutions that will probably resonate if you've ever tried to actually make one. And this story answers a pretty interesting question. Is it harder to achieve a goal or form a new habit? Let's talk New Year's resolutions. Do you go for easy resolutions or shoot for more challenging goals? In a recent study, psychologists came up with some ideas for what types of resolutions you can and should set. What kind of resolutions did you set? One of them is I, I want to budget my money. I think that's a, a pretty standard one that people do. I, I don't I don't keep a budget, and I feel like that's the thing I needed to do. Ooh, yeah, that can be good. Yeah. What about you? I don't usually set resolutions because I'm indecisive, and I never can pick one, I guess. A 365-day commitment is just so much. Yeah, right. Well, the hope is that it's more than 365 days. Yeah, no. <laughs> So for this study, researchers presented 300 people with five hypothetical goals. They were put into three categories, academic GPA, personal savings, and tennis wins. One goal was maintaining the status quo, as in something like maintain a 3.5 GPA. Other types of goals focused on either a small, medium, large, or very large improvement on the status quo. Participants were broken into groups, and each group ranked how hard they thought a category was. Some results were obvious, like small improvements were easier than medium improvements and medium improvements were easier than large improvements. But the participants said that those goals where they'd maintain the status quo were harder than the goals that involved making small improvements. That's because the small goals felt more manageable. See, if you feel like there's no improvement with the goals you set, then all the factors outside your control slip into the foreground. You start to think about stuff like, can I keep saving at the same pace as last year? What if the economy tanks? What if I have a family emergency? This is an effect the researchers call negativity bias. Now, in a different experiment, participants told researchers it would be easier to maintain the status quo than it would be to make small improvements. But in this experiment, the participants also said that if they had to pick a goal for themselves, they'd make small improvements rather than maintain the status quo. They said that they thought small goals were harder, but they also had better rewards. 
In reality, maintaining the status quo is technically easy, but psychologically difficult. It takes effort, but has no clear payoff, so it's hard to get motivated. Researchers saw this as a quirk in human psychology. So when you're aiming for goals this year, set resolutions ambitiously. You might not make big achievements right away, but small improvements are better than letting those goals become stagnant. And how did that New Year's resolution go, Ashley? I've been keeping a budget all year. It's actually been really great. I've saved a ton of money. I love it. Cool, and we're almost at the end of the year, at which point you can stop. No. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have resolved probably several times this year to go to bed and wake up earlier, but I'm just not a morning person like you are, Ashley. And, you know, some people might say that's just an excuse for going to bed late, but it actually turns out there might be some science behind why that's so tough for you. Are you a morning person or a night owl? A recent study says either way, your sleep schedule might be written into your genes. This is perfect for us to talk about, Ashley. It really is, because we're totally the opposite. Absolutely the opposite. (laughs) Yes. Now, first, let's get into some parameters. In the world of sleep studies, night owls are people who go to bed after 11 p.m. and wake up after 8 a.m. That's me. Then there are larks who get up before 8, even on the weekends. That's Ashley. That's for sure. There are actually lots of different studies about how the two different sleep schedules make for different brain types. So our brains are different. That's kind of cool. Podcast co-hosted by two different brain types. But there's not a lot of research about what made those brains different in the first place. Well, for a study published in Nature, researchers looked at the DNA of nearly 90,000 people who had submitted their genetic material to 23andMe. And they discovered 15 genetic patterns that tended to be associated with being a lark. Some of those patterns were close to other patterns that we know are associated with circadian rhythms, but other patterns were found near genes like the ones responsible for the eyes detecting light. That made the evidence pretty clear that if you tend to wake up early, it's probably because your genes are telling you so. Now, your circadian rhythm will probably change during your lifetime, possibly for evolutionary reasons. And the jury is still out on whether it's better to be a night owl or a lark. There's pros and cons to both. But either way, just know you'll probably end up at both extremes at some point in your life. And you might have your genes to thank. Although I don't think I've ever been in a lark. You're going to be like 80 years old. You're going to be getting up at 5 a.m. We'll see. We'll check in with you in several decades. (laughs) Perfect. It's weird that I'm not a morning person, but at the same time, I still love getting stuff done early. Like, I don't like to get out of bed before 10 a.m., let's say. But when I do, and then I'm finished with everything before noon, it's kind of the best. And another weird thing is that I may have a hard time waking up early, but even when I do sleep in and I get plenty of sleep, I'm still exhausted after work. Turns out there's a reason for that. Here's why. Cody, when do you like to work out? When do I like to work out? When do you usually work out (laughs) during the day? (laughs) When I work out, I work out after work. But I just can't, man. I can't. Really hard to yeah. do sometimes. Like some days I get home and I'm just like, I can't even imagine doing anything active right, right now. You just want to you just want to zone out. And I actually found out that there is a biological reason for that. It's not just that you're wiped and you don't feel like doing anything. Research shows that mental fatigue really actually leads to physical fatigue. So here's the science. Back in 2009, researchers at Bangor University in Wales put participants on a stationary bike after either spending 90 minutes doing a mentally demanding computer exercise or watching a documentary. Those who did the computer exercise reported feeling like they had to work harder and weren't able to pedal as long as those who had watched the film. The team concluded that mental fatigue reduces physical endurance because it increases your perception of effort. But why? 
Well, according to a new study, there may be a chemical to blame, a metabolite called adenosine. When you do something mentally taxing, your brain burns through glucose, which is the sugary chemical it uses for fuel. As glucose levels drop, levels of adenosine rise, and that blocks the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. You might know dopamine as a feel-good brain chemical, and it is, but it also plays a big role in goal-seeking behavior. When dopamine can't do its thing, you end up feeling not only worse overall, but also less motivated to complete a task. So when you have a hard work day, you burn through glucose, which leads to a rise in adenosine, which blocks dopamine and makes every physical task feel more difficult. The good news is caffeine can help. Researchers say caffeine can not only boost your alertness, but it can block your brain's receptors for adenosine to keep that chemical at bay. Combine caffeine with carbs and you just might make it through a trip to the gym after a tough work day. Or you can work out in the morning like you do. Like I do. That I'm incapable of doing. Hey, not everyone's a morning person. That's definitely not me. <laughs> well, I feel like we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah. Now you know why your friendships change as you get older, how to overcome imposter syndrome and friendship jealousy, and how to set goals and form new habits in a way that'll help you actually stick to them. Yeah, and the science of why you're tired after work and why genetics might play a role in whether you're a night owl or a morning person. But hey, we saved one last story for you, and it is a must-listen for podcast lovers like you. Or if you just listen to music on your earbuds or headphones while you work out. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you've got headphones on and you say something and everybody looks at you like, why are you shouting? Yes. Have always. you really? Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So there is a scientific reason why you get louder when you're listening to loud music in your headphones. And it's the same reason you get louder when you're in a loud place like a bar or a rock concert. It's called the Lombard effect or the Lombard reflex. Then it sounds kind of obvious, right? Like, of course, I get louder when it's noisy so people can hear me. But there's actually a lot of science to it. And humans aren't the only ones that do it either. Dr. Lombard was a French scientist who discovered the symptom of the raised voice in 1909, and he found that your conversational speech changes in a bunch of different ways when your ears are picking up loud noises. So in Lombard speech, you use more lung power, you elongate your vowels, and you raise the fundamental frequency or the pitch of your voice. You also put more emphasis on content words. So like, I'm going to go get a drink versus I'm going to go get a drink. Male voices change more dramatically, but researchers say female Lombard speech is more intelligible. So at least people can understand what you're shouting, Ashley. <laughs> researchers say there are two main reasons for the Lombard reflex. One is so other people can understand you, which is pretty obvious. But the other is actually so you can hear your own vocal output. It's like if you go to a local concert venue, sometimes you'll see the band complain that they can't hear themselves because the stage monitors are too low. Have you had that happen? Absolutely. It's really hard to play when you can't hear your monitor. Right. And I've, I've seen indie bands like complain about it on stage. Yeah. They get on the mic and yell at the sound guy, we can't hear ourselves. Oh, that's, that's not right. No, it's, it's not good. So people want to hear themselves. And even though the Lombard effect is more than 100 years old, it's still used in hearing tests, audio vocal integration studies, and speech therapy, and now in animal vocal behavior. Birds, bats, and even fish have been shown to get louder, to be heard in loud environments. And Lombard speech research has also been used to support architectural acoustic designs and in developing automatic speech and speaker recognition software. Add Curiosity Daily to your Amazon Alexa flash briefing, and you can even listen to this story on your smart speaker. How's that? As meta. That's very meta. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can listen on your smart speaker, like Cody said, but you can also find Curiosity Daily on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 
You can also visit curiositydaily.com to search through our archive to find more than 400 episodes of our show. Our stories are all based on scientific research, but we cover more than just your daily life. We also get into everything from history to quantum mechanics to astrophysics and basically everything in between. And remember, we have a perfect five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Our episodes are less than 10 minutes long, so we hope you check us out. It certainly won't take all day. Thanks for getting to know us, and we hope to talk to you soon. And thank you again to Alan Alda for letting us teach you a few new things. For Curiosity Daily, I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Clear and Vivid returns next week on Tuesday, November 26th, with an all-new Season 6. Our special guest is a legend, the much-beloved star of stage and screen, Julie Andrews. Julie is joined by her daughter and co-writer, Emma Walton Hamilton. The two of them talk with me about their new book and about how they collaborate as mother and daughter, how they've dealt with the many challenging communication issues in their lives. Season 6 has an exciting lineup, so listen in next week after my interview with Julie and Emma for more details on who else will be joining us. Bye-bye.